You're listening to Veterans for Recovery, a podcast that unpacks all things recovery within our extended military family. Join your host, retired Major John Donovan, a noted author, lecturer, and person in long-term recovery from substance use disorder, as he and his guests will break down current trending topics and research, along with all things recovery related to increasing recovery resilience and recovery capital within our veteran and service member communities. Now here's your host, Major John Donovan. Good day, everybody, and welcome to another podcast of Veterans for Recovery. I'm Major John Donovan, and during this podcast, we unpackage all things recovery-related and specifically related to our veteran community. Today, it is my great honor and pleasure to be interviewing Jay Donovan. Now, if those two last names sound familiar, that's because Jay uh, is also my brother. And Jay is recording this, talking to us from the Philippines today. Uh, Really excited to have him on the program. Jay is a person in long-term recovery. Uh, Although not a veteran, Jay worked with veterans in recovery for 20-some years. So let's get right into this and start our conversation today. Jay, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited about this. So Jay, uh, first, tell us a little bit about your recovery journey. My recovery journey started, I was a a very young man. I got involved in alcohol and other drugs at a very early age. And I got addicted right away, like immediately. There was no long uphill climb to my addiction. It was within a week or two after my first use. And it went from there. It went on for a long time. And there was a, a call it a divine intervention, if you will, uh, that happened at a at a relatively young age, I was 21 years old, found myself in treatment, and uh, and for some reason, it clicked. I started my recovery journey at the age of 21, 22 years old, and I've been on that journey ever since. And how many years of recovery do you have now? I have 43 years in recovery. Amazing. Fantastic. Over four decades of recovery. And so... Today's topic is about veterans in recovery, and and you at one point uh, wanted to join the armed services. What happened there? I did. I I was uh, I think around 19 years old and just out of high school. Tried a few jobs here and there, but I thought a buddy of mine and I were going to go in on what they called the buddy plan in the Navy. So he and I both went down to the recruitment station in Minneapolis and went through the whole rigmarole, the physical, and at the very end of the station, the last station, I've never forgotten this, I was 19, the guy looking at my physical record, he looked up at me, he took a stamp, he stamped, he looked up at me again, he pulled the stamp away and it said reject. And I've never forgotten that. I I have what is called uh, a lazy eye. My vision is 2,400 at best in my uh in my right eye and so they said no go you can't get in and so i tried the army they said no i tried the marine corps none of the services at the time were taking anyone and there were were no medical waivers at that time so looking back do you think that was advantageous or detrimental to your career path 
Well, considering the buddy I was going to go in with did go into the Navy and ended up in uh, Port Leavenworth Prison, uh, I thought it was pretty advantageous that I did not get picked up. You know, and it led my path, you know, what I needed to do is that I needed to hit my bottom. And, and that I remember was a big step towards hitting my bottom. It's like I had nowhere else to go and nothing else to look forward to. And, and that got me closer to my bottom, which I needed to hit in order for me to get into recovery. I would think that as you were putting your head on your pillow and thinking, geez, not even the army will take me. That must have been pretty depressing. Well, yeah, but you know, there is a story I often tell, John, uh, maybe you're familiar with it. Good luck, bad luck, who knows? So uh, what seemed to be a, uh, a disastrous situation turned out to be a very uh, wonderful situation in the long run. So let's go back just a little bit. You, uh, you, you're going to sober up when you're 21, but 19. So you're kind of at the height of your using. Probably some of the most outrageous stuff is going on. And there must have been something internally that's saying, I need to get some structure. I need to get some discipline in my life. And so I'm going to grab it from this external source. If I get into the armed forces, they'll get my act together. Was, was Absolutely, that yeah. So yeah. in your professional career, did you ever see that? You know, what, what I saw were a lot of young men and women who did get into the military looking for that very same thing. And, and uh, you know, looking for that discipline, looking for, you know, if I just get out of this small town and get into the military, they won't have drugs. You know, I could just drink uh, or, you know, I'm looking for somebody to give me discipline and I'm looking for that. And they, they joined the military with those hopes that this is going to be my saving grace. Is I And they're going to teach me all the things that I need to learn for the rest of my life. So yeah, I saw that every day. So you could uh, relate to them, empathize with them um, at a real visceral level uh, of what they were going through when, and kind of looking for that structure that system out there a mom a dad somebody to say hey we're gonna straighten up and fly right yeah you know it talk about visceral it, it got to be so visceral there was one young soldier uh who was in i don't know what year it was 2009 or 10 uh and there was uh there were a lot of deployments going on the military was allowing pretty much anyone to come in at that point. They were giving a lot of waivers. And this one young man had gotten in on a medical waiver. And I said, oh, what, what, did, they, what did they give you your medical waiver on? He said, well, you know, I have a lazy eye. He said, <laughs> and I looked at him. I was like, what? <laughs> and it just brought back all of those emotions and feelings I had when I was I was uh, 19 years old, you know, and it was, uh, you know, almost 35, 40 years later that I run into this young man who ended up getting a waiver and going into the military. So, yes, I could empathize with them very much. 
So a, a real 360 kind of event. So let's back up a little bit. You are 21, you get into recovery, and you pursue a career in the helping profession. Uh, you pursue an undergrad degree and, a, and then a, eventually a graduate degree, a master's degree. Um, and you start your life as a, I think what they called at that time, a drug and alcohol counselor. Yes. And you were working in the great state of Wisconsin, and you got this idea one day to apply for a position with the Department of the Army. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I just completed a recertification process in the state of Wisconsin, uh, something that I had in Colorado at one point, but, but lost when I, when I worked in Sweden for a couple of years and I got recertified and, and I can't remember how I heard about it. Maybe it was you, but I know that our sister had said she knew someone connected to the military and she, and this is 1999 and she gave me her e the email address. Now email addresses in 1999 were, were around, but they were, you know, not all that common at that point, nor were websites. And so I reached out to this guy and uh, who happened to be in Yokohama, Japan. And he had sent me a link to a website. And it and on the website, it said hard to fill positions for the military. And one of them was for a substance use counselor in Hawaii. And I thought, well, I wonder why it's so hard to fill. So I applied and uh, I did two or three phone interviews. And the next thing I know, I'm leaving the great state of Wisconsin. And in March of 2000, I start my new life in Honolulu, Hawaii at Triple Army Medical Center. So forgive me if I have the title wrong, but you got brought on as a Department of the Army civilian? I did. I was, uh, they, they refer to us as DAX, Department of the Army civilian. I was a GS nine at the time that's what i got hired as and uh you know they with uh what they call the cost of living adjustment and uh other things i they paid fairly well a lot better than what i was getting in madison but of course the cost of living in honolulu is extremely high as well so uh, a dac department of the army civilian dac DAC. correct yeah so yeah you're in Honolulu. Uh, you're working now uh, at the big pink hospital up on the hill that any sailor, marine, soldier, airman, coast guard that is listening to this podcast and was stationed in Hawaii uh, will remember fondly. Uh, you're working there. Uh, you're living there. Life is good. Tell us a little bit about the work that you did on behalf of our service members in this field of uh, substance abuse counseling? I had the best job in the military. And we worked at what I consider the best kept secret in the military. And I'm gonna, the secret is out. So I'm gonna tell you about it. I worked at what is now called uh, an addiction medicine intensive outpatient program. It's AMIOP, we all called it AMIOP. So it was, uh, ensconced within that very large hospital. Uh, there's 5,000 employees at that 
facility. And we had a whole wing to ourselves. And uh, we, we were supported by the military tremendously. We were given a caseload of four or five service members, each counselor, and we worked with them from approximately eight o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon, Monday through Friday, for four to six weeks long. And we would work in individual counseling sessions and groups. And it was wonderful. They would, uh, the command would give them time to go to treatment. They would support them after treatment. We had them for as long as we needed. Uh, we had the support of psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, whatever a service member needed, they received. A real quick story about that. I worked in Catholic Social Services in Wisconsin, which I loved dearly, and it was a great program. But when I had a, when I had a client who needed medications, I would call the Dane County Mental Health Services, and they would say, oh, yeah, wonderful. We'll get them in. It's June right now. We can have them see a psychiatrist in August. How does that sound, Mr. Donovan? And I'd say that sounds great. Thank you very much. And then when I got into the military and I and I I was at a staff meeting and I said to the psychiatrist, I have this client. I think he's depressed. I think I think it's important that he sees someone about that. When can he be seen? And the psychiatrist, he says, oh, I don't know. Uh, how about three o'clock this afternoon? <laughs> and I said. Very well, then. And that was the difference that we had between the military medicine and, and the medicine out in in uh, civilian world. So uh, some more robust resources. The, uh, the flashed bank time was considerably shortened. Yeah. Now, I, I must add that uh, we were, for the military, the AMIOP program, uh, or programs like it all over the military were the last, the last door before the military was going to say goodbye to the service member. If they didn't get their act together, if they didn't follow the program, they were going to get, you know, uh, discharged from the military immediately. So, so there was motivation for many of the service members, but others were like, I was looking for a way out anyway. So, you know, their motivation wasn't very high, but we were pretty much the last door of salvation prior to them getting discharged from the military. So you dealt with a lot of people who were looking at uh, command referrals, uh, MP referrals, medical referrals, uh, people who had run amok of military justice, uh, have been picked up. Uh, drunk on duty, uh, disorderly conduct, things of that nature? All of that, yes. Uh, everything that you've just described, uh, that was our caseload, if you will. Uh, and on rare occasion, you know, someone would actually come in and, and have a, a concern, either a family member would bring them in, but that was pretty rare. But yeah, or like I remember in the latter years, uh, I did a lot of work with higher ranking non-commissioned officers and officers who had been referred for detoxification at the facility, even though we didn't have a formal detox program at Tripler, uh, but they needed uh, you know, a hospital bed for several days. 
And uh, we would start working with them as well on, a, on an IOP basis. So you're working intensive outpatient through Tripler in Hawaii. And I'm interested in that because when I was in the military, some really landmark programs were intensive inpatient. And there were programs in, at the Nuremberg Hospital, at the Stuttgart Hospital, at the Landstuhl Hospital. Uh, these were very famous kinds of programs within army medicine uh, that soldiers would get referred to all the time, uh, whether they were stateside or overseas. And while you were in, you saw the closing of those programs uh, and the army started to refer people to outpatient clinics and describe that or unpackage that a little bit for us. So, yeah, it, uh, you know, I was very privileged to work with many people who were at the very beginning, the nascent, I guess is the word, of treatment in the military. Dr. Gerard Delisio being one of those who was my supervisor for many years, wonderful man, who the Navy actually uh, were the first to jump in. There's a whole story behind that, along with Dr with with Father Martin and some other people. Uh, but they got a lot of residential programs, which were, they had at least two or three residential programs on the island of Oahu alone, to include down at Pearl Harbor, at the Marine Corps uh, station, uh, on the other side of the island, and Tripler. Uh, but as the, as the years went on, the support from the Pentagon became less and less. And then also the, what the research was saying was that the outcome of uh, long-term recovery outcome for those people going through residential versus an IOP were virtually identical. And, and the, an IOP is a fraction of what it costs to send someone through treatment versus a residential program. And so they looked at the research and they said, look, this is, we can do this on an IOP level uh, and, and be as effective in the long run uh, and save the military a lot of money. And so they, they made that transition at Tripler in 1997 and they brought in a, uh, a Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force to help make that transition. I, he was the one who actually hired me. Uh, I don't recall his name, but uh, he was a fantastic manager and therapist. I learned a lot from him. And he made the transition, and there were the, the reluctance was so overwhelming. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how I got my job, is that the people were reluctant. They First of all, they did not want to transition. The staff did not want to transition to IOP. They thought it was a horrible mistake. And secondly, the Army said, hey, we need to professionalize your, your job more, and we're going to expect all of you to have master's degrees, and we're going to give you a certain amount of time to get that done. You have until the year 2002 or 2003 to have all your master's degrees. And this was told to them in 1997. And the staff were like, well, what are they going to do? Fire us? We're GS employees. Well, that's exactly what happened. 
this, that they were, they said, no, we're not going to do that. Many of them did, not all, but many of them did. And, and that opened up the opportunity for me to walk in for this job because I did have my master's degree. And so, uh, so I came in when that transition already happened at Tripler and it was happening around the military. As a matter of fact, it happened, like you mentioned, Stuttgart and, uh, you know, Yokohama closed down. Stuttgart was gone. Landstuhl stayed open for a while, but they even to this day are an IOP, an AMIOP program, which a very good friend of mine is a clinical director of right now. So there are very few of any, I think there's one on the East Coast, a Navy residential program, if I'm not mistaken. And that's about it though. And if, if a residential program were deemed appropriate or necessary, they were referred out into the civilian world. And then uh, a TRICARE would pay whatever TRICARE pays, which is not a lot of money. Yeah, we all, for those who are listening and are service-connected and have served in the, we all know the TRICARE uh, stories of, and pardon the pun, war stories. But I'm kind of interested in in that history because it's almost become 360 in that now there's a big push to embed what we call PRS into IOP programs or intensive inpatient programs. And the PRS is the peer recovery services. So hmm. the individual who has lived experience with recovery and then is not a counselor, um, but kind of specializes in wraparound services. So as the person is completing their IOP, the certified peer recovery specialist might work with them about finding sober housing, uh, would work with them in, in terms of their transition from an evening program to going into the recovery community and linking up with meetings, finding sometimes when they have criminal records, felon-friendly housing or felon-friendly employers. So it's it's almost as if at one point the system jettisoned those who were in recovery, and now 20 years later, it seems like they're bringing them back in. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think they, they definitely, uh, you know, the pendulum is swinging back a bit. I know that at that where I work, we always tried to keep the recovery community connected to our program. We would refer service members to local NA and AA meetings as a means of support. We would have guest speakers coming up to the hospital on a weekly basis to make connections with those in recovery. Many times the people that came were veterans themselves or active duty still. Uh, and they would make connections and uh, let people know that, you know, uh, there's a life after drugs and alcohol, that it isn't the end of the world. It isn't the end of having fun. And they would demonstrate that by telling their stories and also inviting them along to activities that the recovery community on the island were having during the week or, you know, the weeks that they were in treatment. So we had a very, we had a very active network of support. Uh, I always tried to that was kind of my thing when I went in, a person being in long-term recovery and remembering that 
for myself when I went through recovery, what that was, how important that was for me, the fellowship. And so we try to implement that where I work as much as we possibly could. Well, Jay, we're at the end of our time, and this uh, half hour with you has just been fascinating for those who have gone through your program or similar programs, our veterans who got involved with treatment while they were in. I'm sure uh, you've brought up a lot of memories for them as we've kind of unpackaged this. Uh, on behalf of the veteran community and recovery, we would like to thank you uh, for the service that you gave to all the soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guard personnel who came through your program. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Veterans for Recovery. I'm your host, Major John Donovan. Uh, thank you for listening, and we are signing off. You've been listening to Veterans for Recovery, a Coming Home Well podcast. We value your feedback. Please be sure to leave a review share and download this episode. We thank our veterans and service members for your service to our country. We thank our friends and families for their support. And thank you for listening to Veterans for Recovery.